0: My name is Katie Bartolo. For those who don't know me, most of you do. I'm a PGY3 here at Kessler, and I have the privilege of introducing our grand round speaker today. Dr. Sherry Blowett earned her medical degree at Stanford University Medical School, followed by completing her residency training in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, where she served as chief resident. Then she completed a sports medicine fellowship at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Her clinical interests include non-operative management and rehabilitation of common sports injuries, including the use of musculoskeletal ultrasound to provide minimally invasive treatment interventions. Additionally, she is a former Paralympic athlete in the sport of wheelchair racing, competing with Team USA in three Paralympic Games at Sydney 2000, Athens 2004, and Beijing 2008, bringing home a total of seven career Paralympic medals. She is a two-time winner of both the Boston and New York City Marathons and a four-time winner of the Los Angeles Marathon. She is the chairperson of the International Paralympic Commission's Medical Committee and serves on the board of directors of the United States Olympic Committee. She is currently assistant professor of pm and at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician at Brigham and Women's and Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. We are so happy to have her with us here today. Please join me in welcoming today's grand round speaker, Dr. Sherry Blowett. Good morning,
1: everyone. Katie, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, Anyone running New York? All right, it's marathon season. It's marathon season. Um, so it's absolutely a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, I hadn't been to Kessler for quite some time, um, and it's, but I have really fond memories of prior visits and it's just really fun to be here with you all. And I think we'll have some time with the residents after this um, and a tour, and I just look forward to meeting all of you also and seeing all the wonderful work that's happening here. Um, so for the morning, uh, we're gonna take a whirlwind tour through the topic of injury and illness prevention in Paralympic sport and what we're doing from the standpoint of the work that's going on to keep athletes healthy through their competitive career, both at the elite level, but also with a lot of translation to the grassroots level as well, uh, so that we can make the most impact through sports and physical activity for individuals with disabilities. I don't have any relevant financial disclosures. I do work with the International Paralympic Committee uh, as well as the United States Olympic Committee with typical travel and expense reimbursement. An agenda for the morning, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the context of the Paralympic movement related to you know where are we today, uh, in terms of growth of the movement, overall participation, and so on and so forth. We'll talk a little bit about the work that's going on with regards to um, injury and illness surveillance in Paralympic sports, so the epidemiology around that, trends that we're seeing, and some initial findings. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about work that's done in terms of sports-specific sub-analysis that really helps us drill down to learn more about for any one sport, given the biomechanics of that sport and the profile of athletes competing, what do we see in terms of injury patterns that helps to educate prevention programs? And then a little bit about what comes next into the future. So the most recent Summer, Paralympics game, Summer Paralympic Games took place in Rio 2016 and then we had Pyeongchang 2018. Uh, coming up next is Tokyo 2020, which is going to be a fantastic Games. Um, In Rio, there were over 4,000 athletes competing from 159 countries around the world. There are also two athletes um, called independent Paralympic athletes. This is something that's done at both the Olympic and Paralympic Games in terms of participation of refugees. There were 220 new world records uh, set and 22 sports contested two new sports, uh, including canoe and triathlon. And I like this statistic, so there were five countries with their first ever Paralympic gold medal, and I think this starts to describe the reach of the movement uh, when you see medals being earned <laughs> by countries uh, from Kazakhstan, Georgia, Malaysia, Uzbekistan, and Vietnam. So I put that up there just to say that the movement really does have a global reach, and there's a lot of work going on in terms of development and ensuring that athletes or aspiring athletes from different countries of the world have opportunities to compete. There were over two million live spectators, and more impressively, obviously, not everyone's gonna be there in the stands, but there were over a billion engaged on digital media, if you look at social media, and so on and so forth. And what we're beginning to see is that, as Paralympic sport has progressed initially, as I think most know, a lot of these sports were developed as a tool for rehabilitation, and they're still used in that way, of course, in many contexts, but we've also seen an evolution um, into sport um, for elite sport itself. Um, One statistic or fact that I think helps to back that up is that if you look at the winning time of the 1500 meters in Rio um, in a class of athletes that has visual impairment, uh, the gold was won by Abdelatif Baka of Algeria and his time was 3 minutes 48 seconds, which was actually faster than the gold medal time at the Olympics. So these are elite athletes and we like to show our colleagues up a little bit at times. Uh, The Pyeongchang 2018 Paralympic Games uh, took place just last March. Um, The U.S. won gold in sled hockey. Uh, You can see a picture of their uh, victorious celebration. Uh, Some really fantastic performances across the board. Um, The Winter Games are much smaller, so at the Winter Games we had 569 athletes competing from 49 countries. But also um, a lot of attention played to this in terms of the global media with over 800 members of the press from 29 countries. And at the end of the day, we know that these athletes, particularly when they're at that elite level, are out there pushing themselves, and athletes shall be athletes, and athletes are gonna push themselves to the extent that they are at risk for sports-related injury. Um, So just as we'd see falls in track and field in the hurdles, we see crashes in wheelchair racing. Uh, I do have some experience with this. Uh, The red arrow (laughs) is me um, on the track after a crash in the 5,000 meters in Beijing. Uh, Thankfully, no one was uh, critically injured in this particular crash, and in this sport, it's really considered sort of an occupational hazard. The longer you compete, the more likely it is to happen. But that said, that of course provides the impetus for us to need to think about injury prevention programs and how we best care for athletes so that they can move through their competitive career in a healthy way. I also put a picture here of me upright, just to show that I did say upright most of the time. So the key question and what we're gonna really do a deep dive on today is how can we really think about evidence-based injury and illness prevention programs that promote the long-term health of Paralympic athletes or Paralympic um, athletes who aspire to compete at the Paralympics um, and thus all adaptive sports athletes. So what we learn about athletes at that elite level definitely is able to translate into what we see an injury and illness patterns across the board and I really wanted to hit home on that point because yes only a small subset of athletes reach that elite Paralympic level but for that small subset there are thousands more that are training to someday get there or competing um, just for fun and recreation of course which is fantastic. So the paradigm that we've used to look at um, evidence-based injury and illness prevention is something called the van Mecklen Model. This is fairly well known in terms of sport, um, injury and illness epidemiology, and it's used across the world. It initially came out in the 90s, but it's sort of a classic, so to speak. And Willem van Mecklen, who's from the Netherlands, defined this model in which you think about this as a four-step process. The first step is that you try to quantify the problem in terms of incidence and severity of injury. The next step is you look at the etiology and mechanism of injury. Next step, you establish a prevention program, and then you look for its effectiveness, and then you remeasure measure the incidence once again, so it sort of becomes a cycle. At the Paralympic level, we've really delved into uh, this model and really gotten through particularly step one and step two, and now just starting to get into step three, uh, but really trying to stick to this because it is um, the standard model for which we think about implementing effective programs, and it's very helpful uh, to define how we can think about that conceptually. So a lot of this work has been done through a study that's um, taken place longitudinally at the Paralympic Games that was initially kicked off in London 2012 uh, at the Summer Games. And what's been done is that um, through a collaboration with the International Paralympic Committee and one of the International Olympic Committee research centers, uh, we're able to develop what's called the Web ISS, which is the Web Injury and Illness Surveillance System. And what this is is a web-based platform that's uh, developed and refined for each Paralympic Games, where the team physicians or the clinicians who are taking care of the athletes on a day to day basis are asked to input in a really quick and efficient way what they're seeing um, in their clinics, in the athlete village, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so a team physician is given a secure login, of course, it's all on a uh, highly secure uh, server, and, and they're able to say whether they're logging an injury and illness, in which athlete, what's the disability type of that athlete. And then they, it brings them into a system in which they talk about you know what body part, was this an acute injury and a chronic injury, and so on and so so on and so forth. The other thing that it does is that it collects um, exposure data, which is really important. So um, those same team physicians who are logging what they're seeing clinically on a day-to-day basis are also logging the number of athletes in their team and how many are competing on any given day, which is really important because that, that exposure data, allows us to talk not just about the proportion of injury, but also the incidence of injury, which is a little bit more powerful in terms of the epidemiology. So this has really been transformative because it enables us in real time to capture those um, injury and illness exposures or uh, encounters prospectively throughout the games, and then continue to use the system and refine it as we go along. Uh, the key outcomes of the system are, as noted here, the first is injury and illness proportion, which is really just the percentage of athletes that have experienced an injury and illness at the games. And the second is the injury and illness incidence rate, which um, as I previously noted, accounts for athlete exposure. And that's really helpful because it allows the information to be translated a little bit better, and that's really the more important outcome. So it lets you know that you know if you're taking care of, um, say you have a team of 10 athletes competing over a five-day period, Um, and you see like a certain instance of injury, because you have that exposure data, you can then translate that to what you might expect to see in a similar event that's twice as long a year later. I hope that makes sense. Uh, But it is helpful in terms of event planning and so on and so forth. So just to provide a very high level overview of some of the initial findings and what we've seen so far. So um, in London 2012, when this was initially kicked off, um, we were able to capture the injury and illness experience of over 3,000 athletes or 46,000 athlete days. So because this is such a captured audience, it's very powerful and you can collect a lot of data in a really brief period of time. Interestingly, the web-based system, although you know it, we of course had to work out some initial kinks, it worked fairly well. And we were able to recruit the clinicians that were taking care of about 85% of athletes. Some countries opted out. Others said they'd do it but didn't do it. You know all the typical challenges that you face in research. Um, Male and female athletes had similar injury rates in this particular uh, cohort, and uh, younger athletes were less affected. And there were 633 injuries that were captured. The shoulder came in at the top in terms of what area was most involved, and 258 of those injuries involved the upper limb overall. So here you saw a high proportion of upper limb injuries. And that's really interesting, Um, and this was one of the initial findings that came out of the study. A big take-home point is that Paralympic athletes compared to Olympic athletes Uh, have a much higher incidence of upper limb injury, uh, whereas Olympic athletes have a higher incidence of lower limb injury. And if you look at the uh, ratio or the comparison there, um, and if you compare the London 2012 Paralympics to say the Beijing 2008 Summer Olympics, what you see is that the ratio of upper limb to lower limb in Paralympics is about 1.5 to one, whereas in lower limb, or at the Olympics, it's about 0.3 to one. So you definitely see different injury patterns in Paralympic athletes. Interestingly, just one other thing that I think is quite interesting is that when you look at upper limb injuries more generally and if you compare shoulder, uh, forearm, elbow, and wrist and hand, what you see is that by age, shoulder injuries increase by age as you go through the cohort, whereas elbow and wrist and hand injuries tend to stay a little bit more flat And so there's something going on here, certainly with regards to chronicity of shoulder injuries as compared to distal upper extremity injuries, which tend to be more acute. And there's a lot more stats on that. I'm not going to go deeply into that, but just to say that you can see how the data starts to tell you what type of injuries are going on and what we need to look out for. The system also monitors illness, and by sports-related illness, what we mean is illnesses that are experienced in games time, which is quite important if you're a team physician taking care of a Paralympic team at the Paralympic Games, what, what most what most of them will tell you is that, okay, yeah, you know, I trained in musculoskeletal and sports medicine, but actually I spent 80% of my time taking care of sniffles and UTIs <laughs> and rashes. So illness, as we define it in sports, sports epidemiology is actually highly important and can very much impact athletes in terms of their performance. So some additional findings uh, were that age and gender were in also compared, similar to injury, not independent predictors of illness. And in both Olympic and Paralympic athletes, respiratory comes in number one as the illness that athletes experience in games time. And G- GI is also very common, but uniquely in our Paralympic cohort, and if you compare it to able-bodied athletes, skin and genital urinary systems were far more inf- impacted in Paralympic athletes compared to Olympic athletes in Olympic athletes, those two systems, skin and JU, come in very, very low, whereas in Paralympic athletes, they come in quite high. Um, most of the illnesses in this Games time environment were infectious, which makes sense from the standpoint of this cohort of athletes. Everybody's in that same milieu, um, living in sort of dorm style uh, <laughs> housing in the athlete village. Um, and Paralympic athletes report illnesses late to the clinician, particularly also in comparison to um, Olympic athletes. And, you know, using similar um, systems of data collection to what's being done at the Olympics, we do have the ability to make some of those direct comparisons. So one of the big take-homes in terms of illnesses is that you see illness types cluster according to disability type, and that's intuitive, but it's also great to see that borne out in the data. So for example, skin and subcutaneous illnesses, if you look at the overall number of athletes experiencing involvement of that system, most of them were either um, athletes with SCI or amputees, and if you look at those with UTIs, intuitively most of those are athletes with SCI or neurogenic, uh, in, uh, excuse me, neurogenic, um, uh, neurologic injury uh, leading to neurogenic bladder. Um, additionally, as noted, um, something that's been a point of great attention is that it seems like athletes wait a while and some symptoms for a little while before they report them. I think this is probably somewhat inherent to working with athletes with disabilities where athletes are simply used to a lot of things pop- popping up here and there and are fairly resilient and think, think that think that things will take care of themselves. So if you look um, you know we see in the in the blue columns here that several report on the same day, but there's a good proportion that wait 24 to 48 hours or over 48 hours before they report. And this is a big deal because particularly in the, at the Paralympic Games in this elite environment, Uh, If you sit on symptoms it can lead to more time loss from competition And so this is a big point from the standpoint of athlete education You know you're at the Paralympics this is an elite competition You have to act like an elite athlete and complain about things more (laughs) and tell us right away When you're starting to experience symptoms so that we can jump on top of it and start to treat it before it gets more um, significant and thus impacts your performance a lot of docs will also tell you that you know working with Paralympic athletes, athletes are so resilient that they actually have to overcompensate in terms of telling them to complain more. Whereas on the Olympic side, um, in comparison, it's it's quite the opposite scenario in which athletes are like, oh, I, you know, the tiniest thing gets a visit to the doctor. So um, that was a brief overview of the data from London. If you're interested in more information um, or more detail in any of those topics, the three papers. Um, uh, that came out of the initial uh, portion of the study were in British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, listed here, and of course you can find those um, in the literature. So I'm gonna now do a quick overview of fast forwarding to Rio 2016 and focusing primarily now again on the summer games um, and taking you know, what we learned from the findings in uh, London and then translating that to Rio. So the first thing is that if you look at the overall injury incidence rate and illness incidence rate, Um, Comparing London and Rio, you see that both went down. And interestingly, you know, when we noted this and we noted that the data was telling us this, of course, that leads to a lot of questions with regards to, well, it seems like a fairly dramatic change, actually, for only a four-year period of time. And this goes to to the point of um, how important data collection is and the systems that you use for data collection. Because really what happened in Rio is that the games were a little bit last minute and a little bit chaotic and the organizing committee there struggled a little bit, particularly uh, as it related to the Paralympic Games. Uh, in fact, it's a little known fact, but the Paralympic Games in Rio actually almost didn't happen uh, because they ran through the whole budget at the Olympic Games. There was no money left and the government had to step in to fund the Paralympic Games. So it was, it was tenuous and it was touch and go uh, in terms of the Rio Games. Tokyo, by the way, will be much better. It's very, very well organized and everything is coming together beautifully. But for that reason, obviously everyone, it was because of that chaotic environment, things just, you had to think on your feet more, you had to troubleshoot more. And one of the things that happened is that we weren't able to get all of the data from um, what we call the venue medical stations. So that's the medical stations at the um, Athlete Village as well as all the major venues like the track and field stadium, the swimming venue, and so on and so forth. So really, most likely, the uh, overall change here is because of the the fact that the the overall data, the pool of data, was a little bit different in Rio as compared to London. And, of course, you just have to express that as a limitation. Not much you can do about it. We tried very hard to get that data, but at the end of the day, it just didn't work. Um, Still valuable, however, and certainly still interesting of note, at the Paralympic Games, there was all this news about the Zika virus and about the poor water quality in Rio and in the harbor and how that might impact the risk of infectious disease in athletes, for example, those competing in sailing or triathlon, where they were actually in the water. And there were no reported illnesses due to either of those things. So it just goes to show that often the reports in the media don't really match what happens at the games. Um, If we look at the injury experience in Rio, um, what we were able to do is now look um, a little bit more closely per sport. And we noted that there were several sports, particularly those noted in red here, that were independent risk factors for injury after adjusting for age and sex. So we we're able to get a little bit more fancy with the statistics. And those noted here were, I'll just run through them for you, wheelchair basketball, judo, football seven aside, which is football for athletes with CP, football five aside, which is for athletes with visual impairment, wheelchair rugby, and wheelchair fencing, interestingly. And what you see here is that the sport with, um, that really sticks out is the sport of football five-a-side, and uh, as noted, that is a sport for uh, football for athletes with visual impairment. So interestingly, this is a sport where uh, the rules state or the way the rules work, all of the athletes, whether they're low vision or completely blind, have to wear blindfolds so that the playing field is evened out between all the athletes. Uh, there's five players on the pitch at any given point in time. The goalie is sighted. And there's a coach that stands right behind the goal that's also sighted that yells out to signal to the players where the goal is in space so they know where they need to be heading in terms of you know, passing the ball and moving the ball down the field. I think it's one of the most impressive and amazing sports in the Paralympic program. Um, if you think about the dynamics of an athlete uh, with full visual impairment, fully blind, actually playing football. And these athletes are amazing. It's incredible how they adapt. So what we've seen is that this sport, football five aside, has had the highest incidence of injury now across two games in both London and Rio. And that of course makes you wonder and it raises a red flag with regards to what's going on in that sport. And if you take a deeper dive and look at that data, what you notice is that uh, there's a really high incidence of injuries to the head and neck and a really high incidence of collisions on field. And in Rio, we actually added questions to the uh, web ISS, particularly related to concussion. Um, and we visibly from the stands could see incidents in which athletes collided and probably experienced a concussion, but there were zero concussions reported, which simply says that uh, that we need to do a lot more work with the sport with regards to sideline monitoring, concussion identification, and concussion um, treatment, because I can guarantee you they're happening. It's just that people aren't picking them up or thinking about reporting them in that fashion. Uh, so I have one video here. Um, actually, I think I can, I can play it. Yep. Hopefully we get this to work. So this is um, an example of an event that was probably a concussion, but was not reported as one. This is a game between Brazil and Turkey. And what you see is, so here's a Brazil player. He's dribbling. Remember, you can't see. (laughs) Pretty incredible. And right here, you see two athletes going for the same ball, and bam head-to-head contact on the field. You see the player in white clutching his head, the player in green, it's a little hard to see him, but he's down on the ground clutching his head. Uh, Direct head-to-head contact in play. Um, And so events like that take place quite frequently, um, and it's a sport that's really screaming for a concussion identification and prevention program, and that's something that uh, we're working on as a next step, which I'll talk about a little bit later in the talk. Here it is again. So you see those two athletes collide on the field. So it's an example of where you can start to see red flags borne out in the data, and then that lets you drill down a little bit more in terms of actually looking at what's going on in the sport and where attention needs to be focused. In Rio, um, as it relates to illness, uh, we saw many of the same trends in comparison to uh, London. Notably, once again, we noted that skin sub-Q and uh, GU were uniquely impacted in Paralympic athletes and that it was primarily athletes with SCI who were experiencing a really high incidence of um, uh, GU involvement, particularly infectious involvement in the context of UTIs as well as skin complications. Um, doing a little bit of a deeper dive on GU illness, there's been some interesting things uh, that have come out. So many of you know, may know Andrei Krasukov from the University of British Columbia. He does a lot of work on autonomic dysreflexia in spinal cord injury, and he's also quite interested in sport and Paralympic sport, And he and a research team were on-site at the uh, Parapan American Games in 2015, and they were actually doing a study looking at um, how autonomic dysreflexia impacts athletes with disabilities. But one thing they also did was simply ask athletes about their their number of UTIs per year, and they noticed what I think is just an interesting fact with regards to um, the fact that dependent upon where athletes come from, for participation in the games or in elite competition, you're likely to see, yet again, a different pattern of um, risk of UTI. And this is, of course, extremely important because it's extremely common, particularly in our SCI athlete cohort, and it can deeply impact performance. And it's one of those things that athletes fear in a games time environment. We often get questions from athletes about whether they should prophylax against UTI before they come to the Paralympic Games because they're so concerned, that uh, rightfully so that something like this could really take them out Um, and athletes often use that uh, phrase that it makes them feel like they go from a hero to a zero in a matter of only a few hours or a day. And interestingly at the games there are significant environmental implications with regards to um, just the services that are overall level available and there's anti-doping implications, right? So I put this picture of a portable, accessible (laughs) portaloo here because um, you know, sure, it's nice that they're accessible. And we don't have many of these at the Paralympic Games, but if you look at what happens at national and regional level competition as athletes are moving their way up through that pipeline to get to the Paralympic Games, this is often what's there. Um, And if you think about an athlete, you know, trying to stay on their game over seven to 10 days of competition and then realize they're using an accessible port loo at the venue, uh, you can see where travel and being in this environment creates increased risk. As it relates to anti-doping, There's been um, a fairly close look at policy over the years, um, and there's specific rules in place for athletes to have to catheterize in order to give their sample. Um, And it's recommended that athletes always have a sterile catheter on hand so that they can use a sterile catheter to provide their sample. And there's actually been interesting cases um, that have gotten into the legal realm of athletes who may have used a medication that's prohibited in competition but not prohibited out of competition. So they may have used it, say, a week prior then they use that same catheter and keep reusing it until they get into competition. And then their sample is laced with the med that they say they took a week earlier. And is that a um, true positive test or not? Again, a whole nother topic, but some fairly interesting things related to um, athletes with neurogenic bladder and the implications in sport performance. The Australian Institute of Sport uh, published a position statement that I think is quite helpful. This came out also in BJSM. Uh, Looking at, you know, for those who are working with um, athletes with spinal cord injury, how should you think about um, UTIs, Uh, you know, should you prophylax, should you not, Um, you know, how do you think about picking this up early in a games time environment, should you check daily UAs just to screen, you know, issues like that that um, are sort of unique to that uh, Paralympic environment. Skin-related illness, there's also some unique factors, um, particularly related to the Paralympics, that can impact athletes. The first and foremost is that all these athletes, of course, have these very, very finely tuned prosthetic devices that they're using. For example, uh, the quote-unquote cheetah legs that are used in track and field. And a lot of these athletes are traveling literally across the world to get to these competitions. And that creates, in all of us, fluid shifts um, and implications from the standpoint of long-haul flights. Um, And that can very much impact athletes who are then needing to go out and only a day or two later to compete in one of the most important competitions in their lives. So we do a lot to try to educate athletes regarding um, things like edema management, fluid management while they're traveling uh, to ensure that when they get there, they're ready to compete. Um, Also, heat shifts. So if an athlete goes from a very cold environment at home to a very hot environment or vice versa, that can impact their residual limb, as well as unique pathogens in the new environment from an ID standpoint. And interestingly, just being in the village has implications. So Brandon Burkett is a researcher, and this is this data is not rocket science, but he had athletes wear a pedometer at home versus in the athlete village, and they noticed that there was an 83% increase in step count in the athlete village compared to an athlete's home environment, which of course can impact the overall load on the residual limb for amputees. Usually that's because um, athletes in the Paralympic Games environment have to go to a dining hall for all their meals, and if their uh, building in the village is on the other cro- other side of the village, it actually can be quite some distance to go back and forth just to eat um, and just to access basic services. And So yet another point for education in terms of reminding our amputee athletes to be sure to think about you know, making fewer trips if possible, maybe getting some extra snacks so that you don't have to go back and forth so frequently, and so on and so forth. So next I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, how we've bridged from step one into step two and now getting into step three in terms of the overall work. And to do that, I'm gonna use the example of a sports-specific sub-analysis in track and field. So track and field, if you look at the original um, injury data, came in sixth in terms of instance of injury in London. Um, uh, And it came in at 15.5 for an injury incidence rate, which means that if you're a team physician or a clinician taking care of these athletes and you have 100 athletes over 10 days of competition, you should expect to see about 16 injuries in that particular sport. Um, In international terms, track and field is called athletics. um, And at the Paralympic level, it's called para-athletics. So when we think about the sport of para-athletics, it's the largest sport on the summer program. It's quite high profile, particularly some of the, um, you know, sort of quote-unquote sexy races that people like to watch, i.e. the amputee sprinting and the wheelchair racing and so on and so forth. And, And interestingly, it's one of the sports that's a little bit difficult in terms of injury and illness epidemiology because it's a sport with several sports tucked within it. Um, so you have all these different events contested, everything from track, short distance up through long distance, and then field, which includes jumps as well as throws. So it's a very heterogeneous sport, and you also have athletes with various types of um, disabilities competing. Uh, when we think about impairment type, um, I just wanted to take a brief pause to talk a little bit about classification, which is something very unique to Paralympic sport. So the classification system is really designed to even the playing field for athletes with disabilities, so that, When you're at the start of the 100 meters, for example, you know that the other athletes that are there to compete against you have a similar level of function. Um, And I like it when it's put in this way. Essentially, it ensures that it's the most talented and well-trained athlete that wins, not just the athlete with the best function. (laughs) So you wouldn't expect a C7 SCI, someone with C7 SCI to compete against someone with L1 SCI. That's just not a fair race. So the classification system accounts for that and puts athletes in categories that we think will offer fair competition. Um, If you look at how the Paralympic movement manages this, um, what's used is is the term eligible impairments, and they're very specifically not diagnosis-specific or very purposely not diagnosis-specific because if you think about it, there are literally hundreds to thousands of diagnoses out there that could account for different types of functional impairment, and if you try to drill down to label every single diagnosis, it starts to get very complex very quickly. So instead, we use these categories... But you can translate them uh, to what you would typically see. So, for example, an athlete with impaired muscle power is likely an athlete with spinal cord injury, but it could also be an athlete with multiple sclerosis or spina bifida, for example. Um, An athlete with ataxia athetosis is probably one with cerebral palsy, but could also be someone with history of a brain injury, uh, for example. Um, And an athlete with limb deficiency, of course, could be a BKA or um, with um, above knee involvement or upper limb involvement. So that's a oversimplification, but I hope helping to sort of paint the picture of how we think about classification internationally. I'm now going to provide an example of one example of that in this board of track and field just to, put, to, to give you a little bit more detail. So if you look at track and field and if you look at just the track side of the house, um, there are major categories included here. and. Um, Briefly, uh, athletes in T11 through T13 are athletes who are ambulatory but visually impaired, such as the athlete pictured here. Athletes in the T30s are typically ambulatory athletes with cerebral palsy. Athletes in the T40s are typically ambulatory athletes who are amputees. And athletes in the T50s are your wheelchair racers. And again, oversimplification, but just to let you see that there's broad categories and you have athletes with multiple impairment types competing in the same sport. As it relates to track visually impaired, um, going one level deeper to that, just to again show you how we, how we uh, manage this in a games time environment, athletes who are class T11 are athletes who run with a guide at all times. So either they're completely blind or their vision is so low that a guide is needed. Um, and in these classes, they use a blindfold to totally obscure vision uh, to make it a completely even match between athletes who are totally blind versus very low vision and all are using a guide at all times. Whereas athletes in class T13 are typically legally blind, but they can run safely without a guide. Um, And this is uh, the category of that athlete that I mentioned earlier who ran the 348 in the 1500 meters. So what really, I, I set that up just to tell you that all of these heterogeneous disability types included in one sport actually makes it very difficult to think about how you collect data in the sport of track and field and how you analyze data. And it really creates a conundrum when you think about a sub-analysis of the sport, because you will have all these different athletes competing in running, jumping, throwing, different disability types, and it really um, uh, made us uh, have to think deeply about how you organize the data to create um, something meaningful, and to help it to make sense. And ultimately, this was a schematic that was developed. So first off, we separated out athletes in track versus field, obviously very, very different sports. Um, athletes competing in track were then subdivided into those who are ambulant versus wheelchair racers, and the ambulant athletes were then subdivided into amputee, CP, and VI. And on the field side, um, the athletes were subdivided into ambulant throws, ambulant jumps, and seated throws. All right, so I hope that makes sense. So, based upon that subdivision and that schematic, uh, there were some very interesting findings. The first is that um, the sport is very large. There were 977 athletes competing um, from 138 countries just in track and field. This is now a sub-analysis of London data. So, in London, there were 216 um, injuries reported. Interestingly there was no difference overall, at least statistically, uh, in the injury incidence rate um, comparing track and field and the majority of injuries were minor and not time loss. Now if you compare uh, athletics, again remember athletics is track and field, and if you compare Paralympic athletics versus Olympic athletics, um, what you note is that the um, overall proportion of injury was much higher if you look at um, track and field and Paralympic side compared to the Olympic side and that data on the Olympic side comes from um Uh, data collected at the IAAF World Championships, which is the Able-Bodied Track and Field World Championships, because on the Olympic side, they don't do sports-specific sub-analysis coming out of the Olympic Games, so we had to dig a little bit to find comparison data. But what it does show you is that Paralympic athletes are more affected by injury. Now what gets really interesting is that if, if, if you compare athletes who are competing in ambulant divisions versus those who are competing in wheelchair or seated divisions, And what you see is that, you remember that across the board, the shoulder was the most impacted by injury across the overall cohort. But what you see is that actually, meaningfully, if you drill down and you look at athletes by impairment type, it's actually the wheelchair-seated athletes who are most impacted by um, upper limb injury. And those who are ambulant um, are actually more impacted by lower limb injury, so this makes sense. And what it really tells you is that if you drill a little deeper, That trend that you see across the overall cohort is actually probably being skewed by the athletes who are competing in wheelchair sports and who are wheelchair users on a day-to-day basis, wherein the incidence of upper limb injury is so high that it throws off all the data and makes it look like all athletes are experiencing upper limb injury, but it's actually this cohort that's just experiencing a very, very high burden of injury. A couple of interesting things that I think came out, um, there's just you know, there's several interesting findings from this work, but I think these are two that are the most interesting and kind of fun. One of them is that um, if you compare the um, injury rate between ambulant athletes of different disability types, you'll find that ambulant athletes with cerebral palsy actually had fewer injuries compared to those with visual impairment and those who are amputees. Um, and that's an interesting finding. Um, there could be something related to, if you think about the hypothesis around that, Um, We think that there may be something related to the protective effect of their spasticity, actually. And if you think about that athlete at a max sprint, say a 100-meter dash, um, and we know the types of injuries that occur, for example, acute um, hamstring strains or hamstring tears. Um, And if you think about an athlete running with a little bit of tone, it's probably the case that that athlete is not going into that full eccentric moment of their swing which is the moment that we know a lot of the injuries occur in able-bodied athletes. So interestingly, although we think of tone as a bad thing, it may actually be protective um, in this cohort when you compare to athletes who don't have tone. Obviously, just a hypothesis, but something interesting to think about. Also, if you look at those athletes who are competed in either wheelchair racing or seated throws, what you find is that and those who are competing in the throws actually are the ones that have the really high incidence rate of injury at the shoulder. And those who are competing in wheelchair racing are actually on par to, um, a, a, or at a much lower um, incidence of injury. And it's probably because of that overhead mechanism and the explosive um, action of the throw and doing that from a seated position that's putting those athletes at particularly high risk. So if you compare track and field, you have athletes like Tatiana McFadden competing in the sport of wheelchair racing, very well-known athlete. You know, in any given race, she's propelling the racing chair literally thousands of times, but she's doing that from a fairly protected and neutral position of the shoulder. Whereas if you look at our throwers, um, and if you compare an able-bodied thrower to a thrower at the Paralympic Games, our throwers, are, our, our seated throwers are competing uh, via a mechanism like this in which they have their specialized throwing chairs, The rules make it such that the athletes actually have to be strapped into the chairs and their buttocks can't come off the chair when they're throwing. If the buttocks come off the chair, they actually get a penalty. And again, that's part of the rules to make it even and fair across all athletes. But what that means is that that athlete's unable to generate a lot of force from their lower limbs and their core and ultimately translating that force into their upper extremity. So all the force is being um, generated just from the shoulder distal, maybe a little bit of trunk if the athlete has some trunk control. Um, and we think that's probably putting that shoulder at really high risk. Uh, And we think about shoulder injuries particularly in high-risk groups like this. Um, You know, It's a big concern. Obviously, we know that these are the same athletes who are likely wheelchair users on a day-to-day basis and likely need their shoulders to be functioning for many decades into the future. And there's been a lot of focus on shoulder injuries in para-athletes, and a lot of it is because of this. So we think about, well, what's the real risk down the road? And um, I like to use a concept that, uh, that I think resonates with a lot of people in sports medicine, and that's that you know we think about ACL tears, and ACL tears are known to cause early osteoarthritic changes even as soon as 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road in young athletes, um, and that s- creates the setup of the young athlete with an old knee, which is a really a public health concern in sports medicine. But if you think about our athletes, um, and you think about the um, high burden of structural Um, structural pathology that occurs at the shoulder at a relatively young age and what that means downstream I think there's a similar concern of our athletes being young athlete with an old shoulder and I think that has to be paid attention to and called out in the literature. So next I just wanted to talk a little bit about my journey and about how how I got into this work and um, why I think it's so important. So um, this is me uh, on our family farm in Iowa (laughs) <laughs> um, when I was probably, I don't know, about, about two or three. And so I'm not from the East Coast. I grew up in the Midwest um, on a farm. I'm a farm kid. And um, I experienced a spinal cord injury at a very young age, at about 16 months, which as you all know is pretty rare, um, in a farming accident. And uh, because of that, and, and because we were living in such a rural area, I was one of the only kids with disabilities around, And my parents, I think, did an amazing job of still normalizing that experience even before I had a wheelchair. As you can see, I had this little handmade scooter to get around on the farm um, and play with other kids. Uh, But because I was the only kid with a disability around, I certainly didn't have any access to or knowledge of the whole world of adaptive sports. And because of that, as I got into um, elementary school and then even into middle school, I always assumed, well, you know, I'm not an athlete, right? I assumed that I wasn't interested in it, but a lot of that was, I think, just a little bit of self-protection because I knew that there wasn't access to those opportunities anyway. Uh, So I got involved in other things like band and student council and all this, um, and I always assumed that I would never be an athletic individual or an individual who was very physically active. Uh, But as with most things in life, um, I had you know, a really lucky break, uh, being in the right time and with the right people around me. And what happened was that in eighth grade, our high school track coach um, uh, approached me, and he had seen an exhibition event in the sport of wheelchair racing at the state track meet. And he came back to school, and he said, uh, you know, Sherry, I just saw this sport called wheelchair racing. I think you should try it. And I totally blew him off. <laughs> I said, well, thanks, coach. You know, that's great. I uh, really you know, appreciate you bringing it up, but I don't play sports. So thanks, but no thanks. But that same coach, you know, being from a small town and everyone knows everyone, he kept bringing it up and he kept approaching me over the course of that year in school. And every time I'd see him in the hospital or the school cafeteria, he'd say, Hey, coming out for the track team, right? And I rolled my eyes and (laughs) went the other direction. But eventually, I think because of all that uh, cajoling, um, I decided to go out for the track team the following year, which was my freshman year in high school. And um, initially, I went out for the team, got a jersey. I didn't have a racing chair, so I started pushing laps in my everyday chair. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't very much fun initially at the start because uh, you know what freshman in high school really wants to stand out? And if you think about it, I was going to these practices and then even going to the track meets, being the only athlete with a disability competing in these track meets with all, able-bodied, all other able-bodied athletes. And they were really, really kind and really proactive. They would put a, a, a 100-meter and 400-meter wheelchair event on the program so that I had events. Uh, but I was usually the only athlete competing in those events, so I would race the clock, and then everybody would clap, and isn't that nice? But as you can imagine, it still wasn't that much fun. But everything changed when, um, at the end of that year, we went to the Iowa State High School track meet, and when we got there, I ran into these other uh, girls who were also high schoolers who also had disabilities and who had racing chairs, and I discovered that there was an Iowa Junior Wheelchair Racing Team and a program that took place in Des Moines on the weekends. And um, I was immediately intrigued—not not actually by the sport or by the racing chairs, but by the other athletes who, um, you know, I saw a lot of commonality with, and who I wanted to get to know better. And so, because of that, my family made the commitment, and we started to go to these wheelchair racing practices in Des Moines, which was a four-hour drive one way, <laughs> um, on the weekends, so that I could be a part of this program. And slowly but surely, it certainly didn't happen overnight, but slowly but surely, I started to learn about the actual sport of wheelchair racing. And I got a rental racing chair, and I started to train with a coach who knew about the sport. And with that, then came interest in the actual sport and interest in competing and starting to acquire skill that made me see that maybe I did have a competitive edge. And um, as I got involved in that world, of course, it really started to personally transform my sense of comfort in myself as an adolescent with a disability and with that self-confidence and just um, uh, you know being more comfortable in social environments and all of that so you know much of why I think this work is so important is because I understand how important it can be and how transformational it can be particularly for young people who acquire disabilities um, or are born with disabilities and um, grow up in that world in which there's so many people who are different than them I think sport provides a really important social environment So with more and more training, eventually, um, I got more and more competitive. And uh, certainly not overnight, but with um, a lot of hard work and a lot of traveling around the world, I ultimately qualified to compete in the Paralympics. My first games were in Sydney in 2000, and I was the newbie on the team. Um, And very wide-eyed about this experience um, and about all the other athletes from every other corner of the world. Um, And it was an amazing experience, and definitely, um, obviously, you know, continued to motivate me to continue to compete um, I went on and competed in two more games in Athens and Beijing. Athens was really the peak of my career. Every athlete, if you, if you ask them, will tell you that they had their best games. Athens was definitely my best games in terms of my um, competitiveness, um, and that's where I brought home my gold in the 800 meters, as well as two bronze in the marathon in the 5, and the 5000. And that's the same time frame I also started competing in ma- major marathons, um, and that ultimately really became a primary part of my career. Um, After Beijing, um, I was starting to feel like I was ready to move on and through that time I had also um, continued my track through med school. I never stopped, I took a few leaves of absence in order to be able to compete in major international competitions and I did it in six years instead of four. Um, But as I was moving out of elite competition I knew that that the movement was too close to my heart and I was too much a part of it to just walk or wheel away. And so I immediately began to look for opportunities to stay involved and to insert myself in whatever way I could. And ultimately that culminated in being able to become, um, which at the time was the athlete member of the medical committee of the International Paralympic Committee. And and I was very had another lucky moment um, in that in about 2010, so a few years into my residency, the um, International Paralympic Committee made a rule change where all of their committees had to have an athlete member An athlete member had to be defined as someone who had competed within the prior 10 years. Um, And the committees had to have this athlete member, but also with uh, expertise that could contribute to that thematic area, so I was lucky in that there weren't a lot of recent uh, Paralympic athletes who were also physicians. And so it was, I think we all think about our lucky breaks in life, that was another one of my lucky breaks in that this rule change enabled me to um, join the medical committee of the International Paralympic Committee. Um, this is a picture of us in Rio um, and it's just a, a really wonderful collegial group of people from around the world and it's been like, truly a gift to be a part of that. Um, so I continued to be a part of this committee and to learn and get involved in the research and um, what I think is that ultimately this has really enabled me to develop this career um, and I think help our field to develop this area of work in what we would call Paralympic Sports Medicine. And to think about the culmination of what we do as physiatrists in terms of working at the intersection of disability and function, and also sports, and physical activity, and how perfect we are to wear that hat of being involved in the Paralympic movement. And, and so it's truly an honor and a privilege. And um, I definitely owe all of this work, to, I think, to a couple of lucky breaks that occurred along the way um, that enabled me to be in the right place at the right time in order to bring all of this forward. And... You know, I think it's fantastic how much interest is being generated in this area, both in physiatry but also outside of physiatry, which is why I think we have to be aggressive to ensure that we own it. Um, and, and how many, uh, you know, medical students, trainees, how our whole generation of people coming up in the field, um, I think has a whole new renewed interest in Paralympic and adaptive sports, which I think is just truly amazing. So moving from that, I'm going to now finish the talk with talking a little bit about um, how we think we can translate some of these injury and illness epidemiology work and what we've learned from the Paralympic Games in order to simply create a better environment for our athletes. Um, So if we think about those initial findings from the London games and our track and field sub-analysis, there's some things that come out of it right away. Uh, for example, we know that it's our really our seated throws athletes or any of our overhead athletes where we really have to think about um, an emphasis on prevention of upper extremity injury. And I think one of the biggest things here is, is education because so many of our athletes come through the ranks and they come through the development levels of adaptive sports to get into that sub elite level. And not all of them have had access to high level sports medicine providers or services to know What are the risks to the upper extremity and what can they do in terms of a prevention and maintenance program to keep them as healthy as possible as they compete? Um, And I think that that really goes across the board from the standpoint of um, empowering our athletes to make better decisions themselves that will keep them healthy through their competitive careers. As it relates to shoulder injuries, I always think about a few key points that I think are quite important. One of them is that even in an elite population, we can't forget about the basics, and one of the basics is quality of transfers and just activities in day-to-day life. And if you look at most of the literature out there, it's actually, when you think about, you know, what are the movement patterns or what are the things that really put the upper limb at risk? Transfers comes in number one across the board. And it's probably actually a higher risk activity, even than certainly even than pushing a racing wheelchair for a thousand strokes in a race, and potentially even more so than those upper extremity throws. And it's that confluence of things like doing repetitive transfers in your day-to-day life and then going out in the field of play and throwing a shot put or a discus or a javelin that really creates that confluence of high risk. But I always remind ourselves when we're talking to athletes, we have to bring things up like this um, because you can have a perfect technique in your sport, and you can be doing advanced scapular stabilization, but at the end of the day, if your transfers stink or if your biomechanics in your everyday chair are terrible, then that obviously you're still not optimized. The other point is that a lot of our athletes, particularly those who are wheelchair users day-to-day, are always... um, going in that forward direction, and they have overdevelopment of the anterior chain and typically underdevelopment of the posterior chain. And so that's a really important principle to bring into any shoulder prevention program. One thing that we often advise athletes is to think about what happens in the off season. So for example, if you look at this wheelchair basketball player, you know that throughout his or her season, they're always propelling in that forward direction. They're always at risk for overdevelopment anteriorly, which can create further um, protraction of the shoulder, further stress on the anterior structures rotator cuff tendinopathy, tears, biceps tendinopathy, and so on and so forth. Um, So always thinking about, in that off-season, really being aggressive about balancing that activity. One of the things that's an easy trick is to get athletes involved in, in sports that involve the opposite or contralateral movement. So for example, Um, A wheelchair basketball player may benefit from trying some Nordic skiing or some rowing, for example, in the off-season. And that can be a fun way to implement or integrate another sport. Maybe it's not their main competitive sport, but it is useful for um, injury prevention. And then the third point is that we know that in these athletes, relative rest is hard to achieve. So frequently what you see is that athletes start to develop pain or some symptoms. um, And uh, you know, fine, it's great that everybody knows that, but what do you do about it? And we can have people rest from their sport or from the particularly exacerbating activity, but then day to day they're still using that shoulder for all those um, heavy load activities, like transfers, for example. And one thing that I help, think is helpful to help with athlete buy-in is, you know, we think about a return to sport paradigm or return to play paradigm in able-bodied athletes, but we can think about the same thing and adjust it slightly for adaptive athletes or para-athletes. And that's thinking about talking to them about the fact that we really want daily activities, if possible, to be minimally symptomatic or pain-free before we then go Progress you through our return to play program. And I think that that paradigm simplifies it for athletes a little bit and helps to put some sort of rules around it that could be helpful for getting athlete buy in uh, in order to treat a problem that may already be symptomatic. All right. So, finishing on what comes next. So, obviously, we've talked quite a bit about t- today about what's been going on at the Paralympic level in terms of injury and illness epidemiology and how that impacts prevention programs, but this is just one small piece of the pie. And we know that when we're looking at this type of data that it's really just a snapshot. The Paralympic Games take place over 10 days every two years, but athletes then go out and train and compete and live their lives year-round for many years in between. So a lot of what we um, need to do into the future is to create partnerships with groups that are working with athletes year-round and monitoring athletes longitudinally. So one of the things that's really being pushed right now is to work with national Paralympic committees as well as international federations who are working with athletes domestically um, to think about implementing similar programs as that web ISS, but um, year-round on a longitudinal basis. So there's been some work particularly coming out of Scandinavia. Um, Jan Lexal is a researcher who's some, he's a physiatrist based in Sweden who's done some great work. And what they've done is they've developed an app um, that, is, um, the, that um, is used with all of their national team athletes, and the athletes are asked to use the app to report any symptom as it develops, so whether they're starting to get any UTI-type symptoms or even some sniffles or some shoulder pain or whatever it may be. And because they have that app, they can report it from any time, anywhere. Once they report those symptoms, that go- then goes to the uh, team clinical staff who then follow up with the athlete to get a little bit more detail and can start to implement a, tr- a, a treatment program ASAP. So it hastens reporting of injuries and illnesses. It also um, hastens treatment of those injuries and illnesses and at the same time they're collecting longitudinal data year round. So they've talked about their protocol for this in this particular paper and um, that you can check out. Um, and I know that they're about to, they're getting towards one year of data collection and will soon be publishing their findings from that first year. Um, And this is something that's a great model for what can be done at the national level um, in order to monitor athletes year-round when we know that actually most of the injuries and illnesses probably occur. Another priority is partnering partnering with uh, sport federations of more high-risk sports to think about the urgent needs. So a greater example of this is the sport of football five-a-side. The International Blind Sport Association, or IBSA, runs this sport at the federation level. And any rule change or anything you'd want to implement um, you have to work with them because it's their sport. So you can't come in and say, hey, I'm from the medical committee of the IPC and I demand these 10 changes in your sport. It, does, it doesn't work like that. Um, you really have to create a partnership. So we've been working um, with IBSA and with Football Five to try to create some initial changes that can be helpful. One of them is that um, the sport is actually intended to have what's called enforcement of the VOI rules. So when the sport was first developed, one of the rules of play was that as an athlete's chasing a ball, they're supposed to be yelling voy. The sport was developed in Spain, and voy as I go in Spanish. But if you watch a game of Football Five, that rule is not enforced. The players just aren't doing it. So working with um, the federation to implement that rule or increased uptake of that rule would probably be immediately effective or helpful in reducing head-to-head collisions. The other thing that we have been looking at is um, whether or not some type of head protection might be helpful. Now, we know that head protection has not been shown to be... Um, preventative in terms of concussion, and that's been shown across the sports medicine literature. Um, but for these athletes who are having direct head-to-head contact, there may be some role, particularly in some soft head gear. that can be helpful for any t- reducing the risk of actually more acute blunt trauma, lacerations, cuts, scrapes, that sort of thing. Um, and can also be integrated with the eye shade. So if you look at the uh, example of the black helmet there, one concept is that there would be a softer head protection and then you integrate the eye shade that they already have to wear anyway into that head protection so that it doesn't create extra burden for the athlete but it also gives them a little bit of protection uh, for those more more direct hits. If we're able to implement that, then you can also use that as a basis for more research on whether it actually does change force um, dynamics and head-to-head contact. Um, things like accelerometers and this sort of thing to understand whether or not uh, um, it might be helpful in that regard. Um, A lot more work to be done there, but that is moving forward. And and thankfully, largely because of this impetus and because of this problem, IPSA itself has actually recently started their own medical committee, which is really good. So they're really taking ownership of that issue. Another thing um, that we're working on as related to shoulder injury is a study that um, was kicked off last year and looking at what is the correlation between pain, shoulder pain in para-athletes, and what actually we're seeing structurally in terms of something like musculoskeletal ultrasound. Because we know there's been some interesting studies that have shown that athletes actually often have less pain than non-athletes who are wheelchair users. So there may be something protective with regards to just the overall fitness of the shoulder girdle in athletes that that leads to less pain even though they may have more structural pathology. But at the end of the day, we don't really know because those studies haven't been done. So we're kicking something off um, called the Pristine Study, in which we're looking at the sports of athletics and powerlifting. Powerlifting also has a high burden of shoulder injury. Um, and looking at the world championship level and recruiting athletes and doing um, getting a shoulder symptom scale, a musculoskeletal ultrasound, and then doing a physical exam to look at what are the correlations between those three things. Um, what is the uh, overall prevalence of structural issues at the shoulder in an athlete cohort, which interestingly, has not really been studied before, Um, and how does that correlate to symptoms so that we know, you know, are these issues often subclinical or are athletes experiencing clinical symptoms or not? So stuff that's all uh, still unknown. Some of those studies have been done in just uh, uh, wheelchair users in a non-athletic population, but we think that things are probably different for athletes and we need to look specifically at what's going on. So in summary, um, there's clearly been a huge growth of this whole area across, really across the country and the world at both the grassroots level but also moving up into Paralympic levels. And we know that, you know, injury and illness patterns do vary. If you look at older textbooks, they they all used to say that things are probably the same between a para-athlete or an adaptive athlete and an ill-bodied athlete, and we now know that's not actually the case. Um, And so we need to think about how we use surveillance as a first step towards understanding these patterns and then how that translates into evidence-based prevention programs, and that's we're really on the precipice of that portion of the work. But a lot more work is needed in terms of longitudinal studies and really creating that partnership with athletes year-round, thinking about how we implement and then monitor those prevention programs, and most importantly, most likely, is educating and raising awareness amongst providers, and I also should have said here, providers and athletes themselves. um, Because that one change, I think, would go a long way towards making sports safer uh, for these athletes. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a very exciting time, and I think the future is bright. So this is Maddie. She lives in Boston. She's eight. She has a pink everyday chair and a pink racing chair. <laughs> She's um, totally killing it. She goes to junior nationals every year, and she could not be more excited about sports. And um, it's kids like Maddie who you know, will hopefully, ultimately benefit from all this research that's taking place now and thinking about how we can make her sports career safer and more impactful and uh, so that it leaves a positive legacy legacy for her and better health into the future even when her sports career is finished um, and uh, you know ultimately at the day that's what it all comes down to so I'll end there um, I don't know if we have a little bit of time but I'm happy to stay and answer any questions and thank you very much for the opportunity <laughs> for more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers Go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.